0: Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovitch, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator at Geopolitics Think Tank in Washington, D.C. And today I'm back with my friend Michael Kaufman, a research program director in the Russia Studies program at the Center for Naval Analysis. Welcome back, Mike.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back.
0: All right, well, we have lots of things happening, and perhaps we can start with the news uh, from this week um, where we had uh, a trio uh, of uh, folks, Putin, Shoigu, and Lavrov, showing up in Minsk, Belarus, meeting with Lukashenko. A lot of concerns about was this pressure on Belarus to help out in the war, maybe open up another front on the offensive Um, What's your take on that meeting? Uh, What do you think the danger is? Uh, We've talked in the past about the fact that uh, another front from Belarus perhaps may be unlikely. Has your opinion changed on that at all?
1: Yeah, so the the meeting didn't didn't yield any kind of uh, specific uh, announcement from my point of view. But I suspect that what's happening is that there's much greater integration taking place uh, economically between Russia and Belarus. And Russian leadership is looking probably to Belarus to mobilize various types of production. They have sanctions and export control woes. They have defense industrial production. They're probably going to be looking to Belarus to substitute uh, in key areas. And in general, I think you're, you're seeing a much closer intertwining between the two countries, which has been the trend for the last couple of years. Belarus is firmly ensconced in kind of Russia's orbit. On the military front, well... Look, people have been eyeing warily the situation in Belarus for a couple of months now. My sense of it is that I, I remain a skeptic, and I think there'll be plenty of indications of warnings in the run-up of any uh, Russian military operation from Belarus. The forces there right now are pretty insufficient to do anything, and they don't have that much in the way of heavy equipment. They'll take some time to change. If there is another military operation from Belarus, then at the best, it could be something to either interject ground lines of communication to Ukraine, or maybe go after the region nuclear power plant, but I don't see a real prospect for a return to Kiev, so to speak. Uh, I won't say that some of the worries about Belarus are too far-fetched, but they strike me right now at least as a bit overblown, and I don't think that that's sort of a rapidly developing situation. I'm saying that because, I, you know, I've seen like you know, on social media, there have been a number of folks of the last month of suddenly came out and say, "Hey, there's something really happening," and trying to draw attention to Belarus. And those of us who follow military deployments in Belarus have looked at it and said, "No, there's nothing happening. There's nothing new happening. There's there's no evidence of an imminent Russian incursion from Belarus at this stage." Although you could argue that the Russian military presence in Belarus has grown notably over the last you know two months.
0: And, and there's been a lot of speculation on social media on whether the Russians will try to use Belarus to, as you say, intercept the ground lines of communication, Uh, the lifelines from Poland that are responsible for so much of the military equipment and civilian humanitarian aid going into Ukraine. But the terrain there is terrible, right? It's going to be very difficult for them to launch anything of consequence to try to intercept those um, train um, railroad lines as well as um, uh, um, roads.
1: Yeah, and they need a lot of forces. This is not a small operation. So the forces they would need dramatically exceed what they currently have deployed in Belarus. It would be a very large operation. Uh, they, and and I hope, uh, somebody might say, okay, Mike, but they've mobilized 300,000 people. And, uh, sure, but people by themselves do not a maneuver unit make. Like you need all the other bits to put that together and the logistics to support another operation on a totally different front for where the rest of the Russian military is operating. And the assumption would be is who's going to provide all that? Oh, the great army of Belarus. Well, um, it's not exactly the world's top army in terms of capability, capacity, and level of training. If so you thought if the Russians
0: had issues, just yeah. wait till you see Belarus, right?
1: Yeah, if you think that the Russian military is a bit overrated, wait till you see the Belarusian military in combat. You might be disappointed by what you see.
0: <laughs> so we we had another. Really remarkable piece of news come out last week, which was uh, a terrific set of stories in The Economist where they were able to interview Zelensky, Zaluzhny, some other folks um, in Ukraine. Uh, Zaluzhny, of course, the head of the uh, general staff in Ukraine. And uh, he came out very strongly saying that he predicts that there's going to be another major Russian offensive uh, against Ukraine, perhaps going against Kiev. Um, he made some interesting comments that he thought that Russians were doing some sort of secret buildup in the Siberia, in the Urals, uh, which I found a little bit puzzling. Um, in talking to some folks here, um, the U.S. intelligence community does not appear to be seeing signs of a major buildup. And a few people have even suggested to me privately that uh, this could be just uh, Ukrainians trying to get more more arms uh, and, and trying to sort of... Uh, elevate the level of the threat. Uh, but, you know, when you step back for a second, you say, well, Russia has done this mobilization of you know, potentially 300,000 troops uh, that Putin uh, agreed to. We know that he didn't really want to do that, but he did agree to it. They didn't mobilize all those people to just continue losing. Right. So at some point politically, there's going to be pressure to try to go back on the offensive, uh, maybe not against Kiev, maybe in the Donbass. But how do you see the situation?
1: OK, so on the first part of it, I, too, was very surprised. I mean, it takes a lot these days, but my eyes widened when I read that interview in The Economist, because I had no idea what Zolution was talking about. I am confident of a few things, but there is no second Russian army being built beyond the Urals. OK, this is uh, not
0: I, World War Two,
1: right? Yes, this is not World War Two. And Len Lease is going from the United States to Ukraine, not the Soviet Union. So that's uh, that's one of the other important variables to consider. Um, second, okay, I want to be clear. I don't think the Russian military can dramatically restore offensive potential. The reason for that, and I have a couple base assumptions for that that could be wrong. One, ammunition constraints. They appear to be trying to conserve ammunition, okay? There's a debate in the community how much they have. But the debate is a narcissism of not very large differences because— Either you think they're going to have problems come spring or you think they're going to have problems come winter, fall of next year. This is the range of the debate, but it leads you largely towards the same trajectory in, in conversation. Okay, next. Their big and, issue- and by the way, the
0: Ukrainians themselves are saying in Bakhmut and other places that the rate of fire that they're seeing from Russian artillery is way less than what they were seeing even in the summer.
1: Absolutely. Next part, there are problems with force quality. mobilized personnel are effective at stabilizing lines they're effective at holding trenches. they have been you know i've been I've been sounding kind of the say the balanced concern take on the implication of mobilization since it began right and it's clear they've stabilized Russian lines they've allowed the Russian military to do a number of things, but they're not very good in terms of offensive potential okay You cannot just take mobilized personnel and suddenly have an effective force for offensives although those- the,
0: the, in Bakhmut, they are throwing mobilized personnel at the ukrainian lines and getting slaughtered
1: to exhaust yeah to exhaust them but who's doing most of the damage in bakhmut the tactic russia seems to have is actually throwing prisoners at the line to exhaust ukrainian forces then following up with more capable forces and then later on engaging in small squad tactics of capable units to try to take terrain particularly urban terrain uh so it's a mix right people have overly painted it as a the world War one analogies have proliferated too far i think they've People have redundant passion dealt themselves in this conversation, but it's actually a mix of different types of tactics taking place. But long story short, yeah, I don't see Russian capacity to dramatically restore offensive potential. I do see the ability to conduct limited offensives like Bakhmut, going after smaller cities. It's clear the Russian military is still trying to take the Donbass, right? That maybe. Um, you know, maybe the trade that Sir Vican made is by getting permission to withdraw from Kurson, he had to agree to pursuing offenses on Donbass. Even though the Russian military is trying to reconstitute, it's not up to it, right? Um, the But but the challenge, I don't see a lot beyond that. And I could be wrong, but I think we know a lot more about Russian military capacity and what's going on now than we did, like, back in February. So I think it's a fair assessment. Um, yeah, you know, why is Zelensky saying that? Well, I'll be honest. I think that what you're hearing from other interlocutors is probably right. I think I think Ukrainians want to avoid people in the West resting on their laurels or comfortably sliding towards some kind of stalemate, right? And they want to create the impetus to get the things they want. In that interview, Zelensky said he wants 300 tanks, 700 infantry fighting vehicles, 500 pieces of artillery, right? And uh, Ukraine has shifted narratives up and down over the course of the war, but they've all been aimed to try to get greater material assistance. And you know what? I'll put it this way. I don't blame him. You know, it's an old um, old Churchill quote from World War II where Churchill says, if uh, Hitler invaded hell, that he'd at least make a, a positive reference to the devil in the House of Commons, right? So it's you know, like I'm just saying, if I was in shoes, if I had to say something and I had to say whatever it took to get the equipment and the capabilities that I needed to win the war, that's what I would say, right? If I had to speak positively of the devil, I would. If that's what it took. So you, I can, you, yeah. but you
0: don't think, Mike, that there will be no offensive. You're you're just yeah. commenting on the likelihood of a successful offensive. It doesn't mean that they won't try.
1: But I don't think there's going to be anything on the scale of the solution I was referencing. I don't think I don't think there's going to be anything that poses that kind of a threat to Ukraine. I just don't see it in the offing. Um, if I was going to spread trajectories, right, I'd offer three, one. Uh, low probability outcome that Russia restores offensive potential in the next three to four months. Anything beyond localized attacks like Bakhmut, I think it's, it's possible but unlikely. Also, lower, low probability outcome of sudden collapse of a whole Russian front. Uh, the sort of expectations that mobilized personnel are going to freeze in the winter and then give up a big part of the line. So far, it hasn't proven true. We'll see what happens in January and February. I think it's a very optimistic um, expectation, and I think it's possible but also less likely. Uh, baseline, I think Ukraine incrementally pushes, starts to retake initiative again in a couple areas, and make gains. But Russia offers a stubborn defense because they have layered defenses, they have reserves now, they've entrenched themselves, and they have a very high force density to terrain ratio. If you look at what happened after Kherson, they cut the front that they have to hold, the frontage significantly. Okay, and they've easily doubled the amount of manpower that they currently have in Ukraine. Right, so if you just do the math on that, all other things being, you know, being equal, barring dramatic unexpected changes, you can picture that future offensives are going to be a lot more challenging. And Ukraine also has medium to long term issues with ammunition supply, as, as we've discussed before.
0: And I should say that, uh, as the saying goes, predictions are hard, especially against the future. A lot of variables here that we just don't know how they're going to play out. We talked on the last podcast with you that uh, uh, the ability of the Ukrainians to neutralize the Russian Air Force is pretty critical, right? So if um, they exhaust their supply of intercept missiles, if they move those uh, uh, air defense systems closer to the cities and enable the Russian Air Force to get more active on the front lines, that, that could change everything. And a lot of other things can play out differently too. That's hard to predict.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If Ukraine runs out of air defense ammunition, for example, Russian Air Force returns at medium altitude to start striking the front lines. Well, that could begin to seriously make up for the Russian uh, constraints on the artillery ammunition front. So there's a couple factors. Um, and they have to be frank, you know, visibility into what's happening in on the Ukrainian side of the equation. Ukrainian force has been one of the biggest challenges throughout the war, like right? for obvious reasons they are not disclosing areas of vulnerability of issues they might have. So it's a bit hard to foresee what they can't, can't do. So you just have to be upfront about that. They're trying to do your best with limited information.
0: So our friend Dara Massacott had an interesting thread a week or so ago where she gave um, an assessment of Surabitian, his uh, couple of months in, uh, in power running ground operations in Ukraine, or actually running the overall war in Ukraine, and uh, gave a pretty positive assessment that he was able to uh, do uh, a withdrawal from her son that did not result in major losses for, for the Russian military, has been able to build defense and depth fortifications, has been able to stabilize the lines. Um, and um, she thinks that uh, he's been pretty capable, at least compared to Russian uh, uh, generals um, early in the war. Um, unclear how much of that is... Uh, his uh, ability to put together a better plan versus his ability to uh, convince Putin uh, to actually take the necessary steps that uh, uh, makes, make, make more sense and perhaps prior generals didn't have as much success on that front. But what's your assessment of what he has done since he was appointed a few months ago?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he's definitely proven to be one of the more competent, if not the most competent, general they put in charge. I think it makes a difference that he's a unifying commander. I do also think that a lot of it had to do with the fact that Putin began to realize the huge mismatch between military means and political objectives and started to get closer in touch with the reality of the war effort after Kharkiv. And Saurvika was known to to have been advocating for a retreat from Kherson. and when they appointed him, they also elected his uh, preferred strategy. So on the whole, I think that's true. Now, I have a slightly different bias. I typically intellectually bias against individual commanders, and I'm looking much more at what's happening in the force. And the force, the Russian force, over time, began to make adaptations to HIMARS strikes. They began making adaptations to their comms and logistics issues, and they started changing up how the force was being used. And to me, it's, it's the aggregate effect of that that's just as important as the overall military strategy that they've elected, and I think the military strategy, yes, it goes with a commander, and yes, there's a lot to be said that the commander who is more competent in implementing it, right, is doing perhaps a better job. But I think a lot of it to me is about the aggregate, and one thing that did kind of annoy me is there was a period over the course of spring and summer where uh, after it became clear that we overestimate a lot of what the Russian military can do in terms of performance, force employment, training, all, all that jazz, but also the the narrative rapidly careened to Russians can't learn, they can't adapt, etc., etc. and they just get everything wrong. And that's not really true either. You've actually seen a lot of adaptation on the Russian side, and the the kind of central problem they probably have right now is, uh, rumors often say, like, there's your procrastination and the Russian military also being the king of trying to muddle through. So... The reason why I'm skeptical on a sort of dramatic renewal of offensive potential is that if you look spring and summer, the Russian military has artillery firepower, but doesn't have mass. So it's making up for a lack of manpower with artillery, right? Then it spends a ton of artillery, a ton is going to be a technical scientific term that we use here, and it gets to the fall. And in the fall, the Russian leadership wakes up and realizes they can't win the war Suddenly they enact mobilization. Now they have the manpower, but they don't have the artillery. They spent it in the spring and summer. Okay? So, like the, the two combinations that you need, right? Mass and firepower that the Russian military needs to move forward, it, it's always lacking one of those critical pieces of the puzzle, just looking at, at 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 the basic kind of Lego blocks level. So this is my this is part of what's driving my assumption. Of course, if you say, hey, this could all be wrong, turns out the Russian military is okay in artillery, which I think is unlikely. Then then some of those could be untrue, but if, well they if did that-
0: they, we know now from you know confirmation from the US intelligence community that they have purchased significant amounts from North Korea, right? So um, we don't know how long that's going to last, but I think the, the numbers were at least a million, if not more, uh, shells. and you know we don't know what sort, types of shells and so forth, but um, uh, that's a significant amount to continue operations, right for a few months.
1: Well, and, and Iran's a major factor, too, here in the strike campaign, right? We haven't seen Iranian SRBM show up yet, but my understanding is that they will. On North Korea, I'll be honest, I don't know. There's been no evidence yet of North Korean shells showing up in this fight. Uh, I would say that if North Korea proves an important factor, then it will be able to tie the Russian military over for some period of time. But at the end of the day, there's a base problem. Russia has it, actually. Ukraine has it, too. The daily expenditure rate for artillery dramatically exceeds the production rate. That's true for Russia. It's also true for Ukraine. All right. For Ukraine, it's more of a medium to long-term problem. And that's why I think you see the US trying to offer offsets. For example, the recent announcement of selling J DAMs, right? Giving J Dams to Ukraine. Um things of that things of that nature, and trying to use precision, precision, other capabilities as potential offset for you for. Uh, Ukraine's large uh, quantity of demands for artillery. But in general, that's looking to be one of the central constraints of the war, uh, especially looking out to 2023. I hate to say it doesn't all come down to artillery ammunition, but that's one of the things people should look to as a major factor. You
0: know, Mike, I saw a really interesting interview with Gherkin, uh, the famous war criminal um, that uh, has been involved in, in this fight on the Russian side since 2014. Uh, and he's been one of the biggest critics of the war, um, not of the war itself, but the the way it's been prosecuted. And he uh, gave his assessment that Russia is really losing in three major areas. The first one being communications, that the Ukrainians are able to have much better communications across units, across uh, combined arms, and use that more effectively as a result. The second area is ISR, both with NATO capabilities as well as Ukrainians, more effective ways to use uh, intelligence from the civilian population as well as drones and what have you. Um, they're able to um, do targeting in a much more precise uh, way than the Russians can and get more strategic intelligence. Um, all the um, deaths of Russian generals in early stages of the war contributed to that as well. And then the third one is leadership, uh, military leadership. Obviously, he's been a longtime critic of Shoigu and um, Gerasimov, uh, but uh, he feels like the uh, Russian military has been completely outplayed uh, by the Ukrainian military in this conflict. Do you agree with him that those are the three biggest um, uh, problems that the Russians have had since the beginning of this campaign?
1: Oh, what a tough choice, to agree with Gyrkin or not to agree with Gierkin, even if he's right. You know, I know for a lot of people, he's kind of laundered his reputation as a military analyst now, but somebody who's been following this war from the beginning, uh, I remember Gierkin very well in his role in it, and uh, some of his various kind of machinations and delusions. So it's a tough one there, to, to agree or not to agree with Igor Gierkin. So I'd say um, on the latter part, let, let's start at the end, on leadership. To an extent, yes, but Ukraine has had its own problems. Kyrgyzstan offensive is a very, very mixed story. If you look at what happened, uh, they replaced the leader of the of the operation, the head of the operation, about a month. And there are definitely issues there. It's not like everything's been brilliant in terms of leadership on the Ukraine.
0: And, so. and by the way, Zelensky has said that in the course of this war, he's fired, I think, mm-hmm. uh, almost a dozen generals himself. So,
1: Yeah, right. And, uh, but in general, the issues on junior leadership In junior leadership and commanders, definitely. Ukrainians have had it, have done a better job. They have better junior leadership. They have a better uh, uh, military uh, decision-making process. Um, Russian junior leadership is insufficiently trained, pretty callous in how they use forces. And they have big issues in how they do uh, military decision-making relative to the challenge of falsification uh, culture falsification system. That's true. Although... And,
0: and by the way, it's probably getting worse, right, as the more capable leaders, junior leaders, have been killed or wounded in this conflict too, right?
1: Yeah, but but a lot of people... Okay, but a lot of people learn war while being at war too. Like if the training wasn't good at the beginning, people learn how to learn at learn war, okay? This is a common Western perception that, you know, you can only have this many weeks of basic and then you can only have this many weeks of other types of training and a specialization and all this... Uh, look, in large conventional wars, you're going to learn a lot of what you need to do in, on the war, one way or another. So it's a little oversold, well, just to be frank. But, uh, so but ev-
0: evolution true. takes care of things, right? If you survive, you probably have learned some things that are necessary for you to survive.
1: Yeah, and, and it depends. You know, there's Look, every war generates veterans. And if you listen to veterans, then they often will steer you in the right direction. That's, by the way, what set Ukrainians aside. It wasn't this like, large, somewhat imagined NCO Corps that Ukrainians have from a military that grew double in size after mobilization after uh february 23rd but because a lot of decision making a lot of initiative and a lot of leadership are shown by veterans of various ranks and a much more democratic sort of decision making system at at the at, at lower echelons but okay only other comment i make on on what gherkin said about leadership matrix keep in mind that the thrust of gherkin's arguments that these generals should be fired they need to be replaced right And Gierkin is more than willing to volunteer to lead the war effort again, as he did in 2014. Like, it's very obvious to me from his commentary. A little bit self-serving. Yeah, he's got some people in mind that he he would like to nominate potentially to lead large parts of the war effort. And I think his name is on that list. Um, Okay, on on communications, most definitely. You also had a big issue in breakdown of cohesion of force because Russian military was using so many different types of troops that were not regulars. Mobilized LDNR, Guardia, Wagner have all sorts of comms issues. But in general, yeah, communications, I think, have definitely been a problem for them from the very outset. On ISR, uh, yes and no. Uh, Ukrainians have a lot to show for kind of open architecture approaches where they've run circles around the Russian military in that regard. Um, I've seen how ground up the Ukrainian efforts are and how much they kind of leverage commercial technology and absolutely develop That part's very true. And I think a better, better process overall. On the other hand, it's a little harder to judge because Russia's very well known for blindness, right? Always having a big issue with ISR relative to availability of fires. But let's be frank about something. Ukraine kind of has a colossal advantage in that it is being heavily supported on the ISR front by Western countries, at the front of that, the United States. And if you have the United States helping you with ISR and intelligence, you have a pretty significant advantage. Well, they they also
0: have the advantage that they're fighting on their own territory, so they have a population that in certain areas wants to resist the Russians and can help with both intelligence and even some uh, disruptive activities.
1: Yes, they have networks behind the lines that can help confirm, validate data. They have access to uh, government-provided and commercial satellite imagery of various types. Uh, They have um pretty well established networks I won't speak to it but I had the opportunity to kind of see and understand and have some of these discussions with uh parts of Ukrainian SSO that are involved in those operations right so like I know I know specifically what you're speaking of and that's also very true so they have significant advantages obviously they're defending their own territory uh but but part of it is, is definitely that Russia had always had a very well-known deficit, for example, remote sensing, space-based architecture, very weak for various types of uh, intelligence, uh, surveillance, reconnaissance. Uh, because they couldn't attain um, even a modicum of air superiority, what uh, aerial, uh, you know, sort of long-endurance assets that they had, they couldn't employ in, in this war. And they were limited availability to begin with. And so Russia often compensated for a lack of one type of ISR with ELINT and using uh, electronic warfare systems to try, to try to develop a picture that way. But, yeah, that's a, that's a fair criticism. I actually – I personally would have probably come up with some others, but that's a very fair – some of those criticisms are quite fair. Um,
0: and, and what do you make of GRU, uh, G, uh, Russian military intelligence's performance in this war?
1: So first, my view is that the people who blew their intelligence operation at the beginning were the FSB, and that was one of the many problems. That it wasn't the GRU who put together this uh, hackneyed regime change uh, operation, but actually it was FSB that blew a lot of it. Well,
0: we, kn- we know that they uh, were part of that initial assault on Hostamol, that they told the military, just get us there and we'll take care of the rest. Yes, but now, now that yeah. we're in a different stage of the fight... Presumably, GRU is taking primacy on a lot of the tactical intelligence collection on the battlefield. How do you think they're performing?
1: Okay, well, force-wise, GRU lost most of their people early on in the war. Spetsnaz brigades that are dual dual tasked, right, supporting uh, combined arms maneuver units in the field, but also dual reporting chain to the GRU. They lost a lot of them. They were using them for everything. They were using them as light infantry, basic recon. They were using them for urban combat. And so, first, it's fair to say that a lot of the force that had a GRU tag to the right of the unit, okay, name, a lot of it was lost. Putting that aside, um, I'll be frank. It's hard for me to assess it. From an intelligence standpoint in terms of targeting and force employment, right, you have probably seen a considerable improvement on the Russian side following September, And if you look at the systematic strike campaign, the strategic operation to destroy a critically important target, outside of the opening strikes of the war, and those strikes to be fair, if you assume that GRU did a lot of kind of target developing the target sets for it, the initial strikes are far were far more successful than people give them credit. They were not successful where Ukrainians had moved those capabilities in advance, or like very much last minute to put it more accurately. But the Russian military notoriously struggles with any kind of dynamic targeting. So it was the ability to refollow up to do battle damage assessment where they really failed. Um, that said, if you look at the development of this latest strategic strike campaign, it's clearly the most systematic strike effort they've had and with fairly good accuracy compared to prior employment of, of uh, the capabilities they're using uh, over the course of the war. So I... I don't know, I'll be honest, I don't know honestly how to rate it, but in terms of targeting, at least it looks like they're doing much better. It's very hard for me to picture that GRU now still has the Spetsnaz units and some of these assets to conduct the kind of operations that they might have been expected to, given how many people they lost in the first months of the war. And you can't just replace somebody like that with a mobilized person, you know? Like you just give them a a uh, little, little Spetsnaz patch and, and they're good to go. You can't replace people like that.
0: Let's switch topics to the Ukrainian side for a minute here. Uh, so there was a really interesting attack that captured my attention a few weeks ago on uh, a highway bridge um, uh, near Melitopol uh, on the M14 highway that goes from Berdiansk on the Azov Sea um, to, to Melitopol. Um, and Melitopol, of course, a critical uh, a critical city that uh, the Russians control in the south. Um, and, you know, obviously it, w- it was an attack that it impacted logistics for the Russian military, trying to bring up uh, forces and, and logistics uh, from the uh, from Russia uh, through the land bridge in Crimea up to the front lines in Zaporizhia. Uh, but, you know, it's fairly far inland and... Uh, Looks like it was a partisan attack, um, maybe a special forces operation. Uh, but do you think it might be an indication that the Ukrainians are really trying to plan something there? Because um, you have uh, you know, a bridge that's fairly far inland away from any sort of uh, major military action right now that the Russians presumably will repair. So why do something that's high risk unless you're planning to leverage it uh, in the near future?
1: That's a good question. So, I mean, at first blush, you could safely assess a lot of Heimar strikes have taken place in the south around Tukmak and other areas, you know, give indications that Ukrainians are slowly prepping a space for uh, an offensive operations operation. And probably that would be a safer assumption because at the end of the day, where if Ukraine is putting together an offensive, where is it going to do it? There's only a couple of places you could possibly look on the map now. And the one that would deal the most strategic blow would be an offensive down south, either to Mariupol or alternatively in southern Donetsk, maybe down to Mariupol. But uh, you could interpret that way. I know exactly the bridge attack you're talking about that looked like it was done by uh, a diversionary group that was, was sabotage behind the lines. And the bridge is an important bridge. Um, so... The challenge I have is that there's also a huge amount of confirmation bias when looking at this, because folks are kind of long uh, have been long anticipating Ukrainian operation in Zaporizhia, and so almost any attack that happens are putting together as part of a pattern. In fact, I think a lot of people are growing impatient in some respects because they sort of want Ukraine to do it faster than I think Ukraine is necessarily prepared to execute that kind of uh, that kind of offensive. Because keeping in mind that look. A Russian military has been preparing for a potential Ukrainian attack in Zabrasia since August, right? So they obviously also know, and it's, it's not going to, I doubt it would be an easy go. It would take a lot of setting up. And the challenge you have on both sides is that Ukraine is pressing Russian forces to prevent a recovery of the Russian military, but the Russian military is pressing Ukrainian forces around Bakhmut. They just have to rotate out the units there and rotate in another set of units, okay, to also pressure Ukrainian military so that they can they don't have let's say the um, uh, the 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 substantial excess capacity for several uh, for another major operation several other operations. I think Ukraine still has very visible advantages, but what I'm trying to say is that you can see the Russian military after withdrawing from Kherson had taken the initiative in Donetsk and itself is applying pressure I think they're going to pay a big strategic price for doing that, because if they really do have problems with ammunition and availability of supply, uh, what they're doing now is they're spending, they're burning through things that's going to cost them strategically later on. And it will show itself later in the spring, you know, kind of, if, if they really have to conserve ammo badly three, four months from now, Dmitri, we can recall this conversation because we'll know exactly how they got there.
0: Well, I mean, we started talking about this in the summer when yep. we started hearing first that they were raiding supplies of ammo in Belarus and the, the initial rumor now getting more confirmed about North Korean purchases. So um, absolutely, that, that's the key to watch. Um, as we're recording this on Wednesday, December 21st, uh, President Biden and President Zelensky are going to give a press conference here in a few minutes. Uh, President Biden is expected to announce that we're going to send a bunch of patriots um, to Ukraine. Uh any thoughts on how much helpful that's gonna be in trying to intercept some of these uh, missile attacks uh from Russia?
1: I can't tell it sounds like it's it sounds like it's more of a battery or two. It doesn't even sound like it's uh one of our fifteen Patriot battalions. So I'm actually even curious, we, were we training Ukrainians on Patriots in secret? Yeah, they're pretty,
0: that's the question I had. They're pretty complex to operate, right? Then I got to spend some time training on them. So I can't imagine that they'll be able to use them right away unless they've already had training on them.
1: And it takes quite a few people to maintain the battery too. Unless they plan to use it for a short amount of time and then when anything breaks, they're going to load it on the train and send it back to, for the U.S. to fix. They, they're going to need quite a few people to maintain it. I, I think the honest answer is that from from a, a qualitative perspective, that's a, a very sophisticated capability that they're getting. The challenge is that they're getting it typical, like U.S. provision, low availability, okay, uh, high maintenance requirements. I'm not actually sure what it's going to do. I think it will afford some ballistic missile defense, for example, around Kiev or other places if, if Russians... Get Iranian SRBMs, and,
0: and by and by but, the way, the ballistic missiles have been a huge problem because the Ukrainians have basically not been able to shut down any of them. Um, so that that that's a huge gap in their air defense right now.
1: Yeah, well, the only thing they started the war with is uh, some units of S three hundred V for uh, for BMD capability. It wasn't much, and uh, to defend a country that's six hundred thousand square kilometers, you know one uh regiment of S300V and i don't know how many operational uh batteries they actually had isn't exactly sufficient but um what I was going to say was that the patriot offers some capability there i think i think a big chunk a, a big uh re- big change in the in the impact is really that Okay, we've agreed to transfer something that's very high-end in advance, so we've broken the seal off of capability. For Ukrainians, that's a big policy win. And we're showing to other countries, to Europeans, that since we're willing to give the Patriot, they should take the lid off of some of their better capabilities and transfer them too. Then they can no longer hide behind us, because their policies are typically reactionary to us, except for the UK, which is always forward-leaning. Um and they will typically, when Ukrainians ask them for something, they'll typically say, well, if Americans give you Patriot, then we'll give you this other thing. But if they don't give you Patriot, then why should we sacrifice our best capabilities, since you're not getting them from, you know, the, the one member in the alliance that has all the capacity and, and, and can give things away. So I suspect that's also part of the reason why we're doing it. We give this to the Ukrainians, they can then point to the Patriot. And go door to door around Europe and ask everyone to see what they're willing to contribute in that in that regard. But by itself, just folks are clear. A battery too of Patriot isn't gonna isn't gonna make or break it. Plus, that's definitely the weapon system with the most expensive missiles you can provide. Like if you're shooting down Shahad 136s with that with that battery, boy, is the shot exchange gonna be uh, not great on the cost. Like that's that's not the thing I will say. It's not it's not a weapon system where the costs go down. They definitely go up from relative to what Ukrainians have been using.
0: Yeah, hopefully they'll use them on Iskander ballistic missiles rather than the Iranian drones. Um, Last question, Mike. Uh, My fantastic intelligence sources have informed me that there's going to be a brilliant article coming out by Rob Lee and yourself uh, in the next few days. Um, Can you give us a preview on what you're going to say?
1: Uh well I don't know how brilliant it's gonna be, but um your 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 network is definitely better than, than Russia's intelligence network. So what I can tell you is that yes, there is a, a forthcoming article. It's um I think the thrust of the article I will I will basically preview this argument. And it's not uh it doesn't delve into a lot of complexity and force structure like the article we did together back in the spring. But basically makes our argument that Russia's in the situation it's in now, because it spent manpower and ammunition it couldn't afford to spend in a Donbass in spring and summer. And they made a bad bet on the assumption that they could attrition the Ukrainian military out, and the truth is that they actually were making considerable progress towards that goal were it not for the United States and the West that came in in the late spring and summer to turn this picture around, otherwise the would have had a different trajectory, but the rest of the argument is that the fight in the spring and summer in the Donbass is actually what set up the Ukrainian offensives in Kharkiv and Kherson. And that if it wasn't for that fight in the Donbass, then the Russian military wouldn't have been running at 25% manpower levels in Kharkiv, and they wouldn't have had supply and ammunition issues that eventually forced them to withdraw from Kyrgyzstan, right? This is kind of the, I think the... Old... So
0: that's really interesting. So you don't think it was the failure
1: of the Kiev offensive and the Northern
0: mm-hmm. offensive. It was actually the Eastern Front.
1: Absolutely. And, and and the point of that argument is, look, people have to appreciate kind of the history of this, at least I think from my perspective and maybe from Rob's perspective. Yes, Russia made a colossal strategic blunder in the initial invasion, how they did it. Okay, we're not going to... Um, walk back through that history but when they reorganized and reconstituted foreign attack in the donbass um they they were pursuing an attritional fight that was very costly for ukraine and ukraine was to an extent often a bad way when you look at june going into july okay and it's the introduction of uh western capabilities you know, from artillery to high mars to all these systems that uh, allow Ukraine to exhaust the Russian military of momentum and then take the initiative uh, at the end of August. But it's really the Russian military that ended up spending itself in in that spring to summer offensive that stopped the Ukraine offensives in Kherson and Kharkiv. Because otherwise, I have to tell you, when you look at this war, but it's like, this, is a, this is just a point in common for anybody that's listening from my own defense community from the U.S. military. The story is that offensive combined arms maneuver in this war has really only been possible where significant levels of attrition have shaped the environment to enable it. Okay, which is an a overly complicated way of saying that it's been successful where it's been easy. But trying to do offensive combined arms maneuver without the US Air Force overhead above you, all right, is a very different story. And this war shows what that looks like. All right, and the success story has been really been an attrition end. And the Russian military attritioned itself out in those fights in the spring and summer. And it set up Ukraine for two offensives the successful Heikov offensive, and I would say the successful but much more costly and challenging offensive in Kerson. I think Kerson's a better model, actually, to look at as to what the future uh, fighting in, in, in this war, how it's going to go. But nonetheless, that was a decisive fight. The, the decisive fight actually was the Donbass. And it was Ukraine's defense and depth strategy... Combined with the fact that they were able to get the stuff from us, right? Like, that's the other end of it, that they were able actually to get artillery and high Mars and these capabilities out of us. You know, without that, you could make an argument. I'm not saying this is 100% right. Like, all analogies are very imperfect. But you can make an argument that without that, this could have had the arc of kind of the Winter War of 39 to 40, right? If. Uh,
0: well, Russia did terribly, or Soviet Union did terribly at first. But then actually captured quite a bit of Finland territory at huge cost, but nevertheless,
1: that's right. And um, and and Finland essentially, you know, Finland had to sue for peace and had to make major concessions. And Stalin accepted this because he believed, in large part, that the West, the, the UK, was actually going to intervene. Right? He was concerned that a direct intervention was coming in the war and wanted to avoid it. So, to some extent, so he settled. But he settled for very substantial gains. And what I'm basically trying to show you is that, yeah, if you take U.S. and other countries out of the equation, you can see a different trajectory in this war after June. And, and I, you know, this, I don't think it's actually very disputable in Ukraine because one, the one sense I got in Ukraine is that everybody there appreciates how this war could have gone were it not for uh, Western assistance. But, yeah, the, the argument is that the central fight was really the fight in the so that set up Ukrainian offensives. And that's why I'm now looking to Bakhmut um, – and looking at how, what the Russian military is doing in Bakhmut with big question marks as to whether or not they are, to a much lesser extent, repeating the mistake they made back in uh, April, May and June and still trying to fight for the Donbass. Because, you know, Putin needs the Donbass. It's very clear that this is the bare minimum he's willing to accept. It is.
0: I mean, it makes sense, right? When, once you fail to take over the government in Kiev that you would regroup to the Donbass because politically that's the argument you've made of why you started this war to begin with, to supposedly protect the people in DNR and LNR. But, um, you know, obviously this is kind of alternative history, but if instead of focusing on the Donbass, where, let's face it, there's been a fight going on since 2014, a lot of uh, in-depth fortifications built on both sides, uh, minefields and the like, very hard to get through— if they had focused on the South and tried to do push towards Mikulayev and Odessa, uh, they could have had more progress, I guess? Would you say that or no? Too hard to say?
1: Look, it's hard for me to say what would have happened if the Russian military played it differently. I would say this, that um, the you know those arguments a bit singular, right? Because every article has to be bound. In fact, that's always one of my exchanges back and forth with Rob. Where uh Rob loves qualitative detail, and I say that we have a word limit but <laughs> but um the uh the other part of it is that if 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 the if the Russian military had elected a defensive strategy then tried to hold what they were already occupying, enacted mobilization, had leveraged all the excess force capacity they still have, okay built up over the course of several months, right then conducted a set of offensives they might have been in a very different place compared to what they had elected to do, which is first, pursue a serious offensive with piecemeal forces, feeding them into the wood chipper, so to speak. Then compensate for a lack of manpower by concentrating, expending huge amounts of artillery ammunition. Then running out of steam, having made very minimal gains, they've captured the great objectives of Sarodinetsk and Lusikshansk. And then being forced to enact mobilization after they'd already spent a lot of their best uh, officers and enlisted professionals and a lot of the best equipment to try to stabilize the lines. And now trying again to prosecute the offensive, but this time they have the manpower. They don't quite have the fires and a lot of the other things. So you're. This is basically kind of a, a little bit like counterfactual revisionist history, but I'm just. I'm just playing the org. And uh, Rob, if you're listening to this, I hope that piece is going to come out now by the time Mitri publishes this podcast. because <laughs> you No, know, I think I might have said too much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure all of our listeners will be looking forward to reading it. Mike, always such a pleasure. Uh, happy holidays. Uh, and thanks again for coming on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you too. And uh, I guess we'll talk uh, in the new year. Ukraine Закінчиться війна
0: за таємник і боргів героїв України Донецького.